You're listening to the Sisteria Summer Series. This episode is an edited version of a live recording we did last month titled Me Too Creativity and the Law in Australia. The event was hosted in partnership with Melbourne-based community group and also presents, recorded at SiteWorks in Brunswick and supported by the Moreland City Council Community Grants Program. Because of the sensitive nature of this topic, we'd like to issue a content warning here. This episode deals with issues of abuse, sexual assault and harassment that might be sensitive for some listeners. If you or anyone you know needs support around anything discussed during this episode, we have links to relevant free services in the show notes. Sisteria is a podcast about women and non-binary creatives and their experiences creating and consuming arts and culture. And in today's very special live recording, we're joined by some incredible guests to discuss Me Too, Creativity and the Law in Australia. Dr. Tess Ryan is an Indigenous woman of Birupai country, originating from Taree, New South Wales. Tess has worked in government, community services and academia. Tess has a PhD from the University of Canberra, focusing on Indigenous women's leadership in Australia. Her multidisciplinary work involves Indigenous women, media representation, Indigenous research, leadership and diversity. Dr. Ryan currently holds a curriculum development role with the Australian Catholic University and works as a freelance consultant. Please welcome Tess. Next to Tess is Madison Griffiths, a writer, artist and poet whose work has been published in The Guardian, Vice, SBS, Mianjin and more. She's also the producer of The Tender Podcast, an audio documentary that explores what happens when women leave abusive relationships. Her work revolves predominantly around issues concerning women, violence, digital medias and resistance. Welcome, Madison. And finally, to my right, Jill Pryor is the inaugural Principal Legal Officer of the Law and Advocacy Centre for Women. Jill is an accredited specialist in criminal law and has over 15 years experience representing clients in criminal matters. Prior to establishing the Law and Advocacy Centre for Women, Jill was the Acting Principal Legal Officer at the Aboriginal Family Violence Prevention and Legal Service Victoria. It's a mouthful. This role provided a depth to Jill's family law and child protection practice and allowed her to have great input into the policy framework of the organisation. She was previously the Principal Legal Officer at the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service where she worked for 10 years. Thanks for joining us, Jill. So I did just touch on the fact that there was an event the other night with Toronto Burke and Tess, I follow Tess on Twitter and I didn't go to the event because I wasn't feeling 100% but I did stream it and I was watching Twitter at the same time and (laughs) Tess tweeted this gif of this black cat filing its nails and she said, waiting to see if someone is going to bring up the elephant in the room here, ellipses. I did want to discuss that elephant in the room with you here tonight because I don't think it was brought up the other night and can you give some context as to what the current Me Too movement looks like in Australia? Wow. Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, I guess first before I start, I'd just like to say that yes, um, I am a Birupai woman uh, from Tari and uh, a visitor to this land that was um, stolen and therefore unseated. And uh, I feel really fortunate to be able to talk on this country because there's so many staunch and strong Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women here in Melbourne. Um, and yeah, it just gives me life. So I feel really lucky to do that. Uh I feel as though the Me Too movement in Australia is, at the moment, it's extremely uh, fragile and disjointed, sort of following on from Monday night. If anyone is on Twitter, they probably would have seen uh, a whole heap of tweets going backwards and forwards between um, a whole uh, heap of feminist scholars uh, talking about now Australia, uh, sort of pre 
whilst Tracy Spicer was there um, and the issues that have come about with regards to disclosures. So for anyone that doesn't know, you know, know, sort of now Australia sort of, and Tracy Spicer decided that, you know, yes, um, give me all your disclosures, Tell tell me your stories and I'll do whatever I can and we will do whatever we can to support and advocate and, you know, do what we can for the movement. Uh, I think she got something like two and a half thousand disclosures. Nobody really knows exactly what's happened with that data and that information. Just last week, I was actually on holiday, so um, here I am driving through Broken Hill and, and Dubbo trying to get internet reception following this story that basically a documentary's been made and it had a private pre-screening uh, through the ABC with regards to Tracy and it basically had uh, disclosed people's names. Um, there were Facebook screens that had their messages. It was probably the most problematic and unethical thing you could possibly imagine. Yeah, so. I should just flag that the it was a media release, so it wasn't released publicly yeah. and screened yet. Yeah. So I just wanted to flag that. And I think there was also an instance where uh, there was a disclosure made and a woman has since passed away and they even had her information out there and I guess for some people that also that sort of had made disclosures that also work in the media industry suddenly they were like going hang on a minute like you know this information could be out there somebody else might have captured this in some way and you know it's taken note of what I'd said you know it was a really it was a big issue um it kind of happened that this broke at the same time that the peace prize was happening that night and both uh, Tarana Burke and Tracy Spicer were going to be on the press club uh, days events. I think during the press club, uh, she she made a statement that said, you know, she feels horrible and terrible that this has happened, but pretty much, you know, it, it's it's a mistake that the ABC has made, which I don't think goes far enough. It's not enough. It's absolutely not enough to you don't you also don't just put a, an apology out like that and and. and you, you're done with it. I said something on Twitter the other day that said, if you make a big ass mistake, you especially if it's involving people's personal stories, you have to continue to make apologies and some sort of you know recompense. You see, you have to basically say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. What can I do? How can I fix this? And I don't feel as though she's doing that so then so this was all happening and then the Tarana Burke event happened on Monday night and you know I'd I'd been away I'd forgotten I I didn't even know that she was going to be on the panel and then Tracy Spicer came out and I literally felt like in the room there was this sinking from a whole bunch of people that were there watching it they just felt as though oh I'm not sure if she should be there and it just changed the tone and the temper I think of the the event it definitely overshadowed it so so are people angry, do you think? There's a lot of people that are angry. <laughs> there is a lot of people that are angry. Is it just because, and obviously it's a big deal with the disclosures element, or is it the fact that now Australia hasn't really been held accountable? They've been given thousands of dollars and no one knows where it's gone and people are kind of questioning what's happening with that. Do you think that that has something to do with it? And the fact that there's kind of more of a figurehead situation than an activist situation happening I'm, with I'm, I must say with, with Spicer, she's, she's no longer on the board now Australia and I think that's really important to um, make really clear and from what I've heard from people is that that they were definitely um, sort of saying to her look we we really need to be mindful here and they themselves 
admitted that they did not expect the influx of disclosures to come through and that they did not necessarily have the resources or support to be able to manage those disclosures. And so they, they have made that, that comment themselves. With regards to Spicer, you know, I'm very concerned. I, I don't necessarily want there to be a pile on as has been discussed uh, with Spicer. It's about looking at the movement. It's about looking at feminism as a whole, but as well as that, it's about looking at what we do right now in this space to make sure that we're ethically protecting and trying to help those survivors that now feel like they've just been completely thrown on the bus. And as I said to you, their, their trauma's been commodified for someone. And I think that's a really important point to make, that none of us here are here to make money of other people's bloodletting. And if you're here for that reason, then you need to go, you know. The other thing I think, and I don't want to take up all the space, but the other thing I, I think with regards to Tracy is that she, she made a comment on Monday night that was about civility. Um, and it it was her without talking about no one mentioned the actual issue but without talking about it she was she was trying to say people need to protect me people need to be nice people need to be civil you know we can't go down this path and I was talking with someone the other day about I thought this is really strange because you think about all the language that's involved in feminism we talk about you know collective we talk about it being a struggle right and we know and I know you're going to get to this later about you know us us necessarily being angry but as well from a black aboriginal first nations woman hearing a white woman say now 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 you have to be civil in this space okay says so much to us it's so deep-seated in sort of a colonialism space that you know us savages need to just calm down and i think i i looked at my partner and i was just like just control me, hold me back. <laughs> um, this is not the time and the place. But a lot of people were having these discussions in the following days after uh, Monday night. This is the time and the space for it. So thank you for coming along. I did want to talk to Madison just briefly about the concept of anger because you do touch on it in Tender a little bit. I think it's integral that we are angry that a woman a week dies because of intimate partner violence, that there is a domestic violence epidemic, that women are getting killed because men are killing them. Mm. How does anger impact your work? And can you talk a little bit about Tender as well as an experience and how it was a version of disclosure for you, creative Mm. version? Absolutely. Um, For people that haven't listened, Tender is a podcast, an audio documentary that follows one woman's story each season as she leaves an abusive relationship. But the story actually starts the day she's left to recenter women in the story and to also acknowledge the residual violence and abuse that women carry, as well as the pressure to, I guess, similar to what you were saying, uh, the pressure to be presentable and to exist um, untainted in, in the world when this thing has happened. And when I say this thing, I mean, you know, a a very global um, and common tale. I think I really leaned in to to my anger um, and I, I almost laugh about it in the sense that when my relationship ended which was a which, which, which was a while now this man must be thinking god she's still not over it and she's still going and she's still there and she's still persisting and and whatnot and I, I, there's this quote from um, a poet I really love called Olivia Gatwood and I think it captures my relationship to anger really really well and she says um, the man shows me who he is and I listen and I think being able to mirror that frustration and that anger and that tension which came out in a way that was so violent and so disastrous 
when executed against me. Being able to reclaim that space and that energy in the room and use it for better and use it to empower others and to also just, I guess, wear it proudly as well and know that I can still have a laugh and exist in this space comfortably while still acknowledging that I will never be over what happened and I'm, I'm letting go of the narrative that I should be. So yeah, I definitely do lean into that anger quite a bit. So you think it does have a place in the Australian Me Too movement then? Absolutely it does. Um, there was a really interesting conversation I had with, so, so for example, the first season of Tender followed my own story, but the second season, which we are currently working on, follows another woman's story who exists within different margins to me. And each season will cover a woman with a very different lived experience um, to me, which was very important given the, you know, the very, the, the whiteness of the Me Too movement and as well as the limited space for, you know, people that have media coverage. So the woman I'm working with this season is an incredible older Muslim woman based in Perth. And she made this claim to me last night, which was so just a bit of a light bulb moment where she said this sector this space is the only space where a woman's lived experience means more than a qualification and we can use and engage in these narratives in a way that will then continue to help other women and that has been so important in her work and in her advocacy she works in the domestic violence space and I really wanted to borrow that idea from her very much so and know that this anger that we all have and these experiences these collective experiences are incredibly you know universal and useful um, for us and no one else. So Jill I think maybe not anger but people get frustrated with the legal system I think frustration (laughs) frustration lives next to anger and there's a lot of talk in this Me Too movement about defamation laws and people throw this out there like nothing's happening in Australia even though we know that there are things happening like there's cultural shifts and people are having discussions like this one but people are also hiding behind the concept of defamation laws we're looking for our Weinstein moment we're looking for our scandal our salacious Hollywood moment what does defamation law even mean? Well I'm a criminal lawyer uh, so who knows what defamation law is well, can I say something about that? Firstly, there, there's currently a case in the Magistrates Court of Victoria, which is which has been covered by the media because it involves somebody of celebrity status who's been charged with offences against a number of women that he's worked with. Um, so there is an aeration of those kinds of stories. Um, the, the concept of defamation is really that you can't say something about somebody unless it's true, and if you do, then you're liable to some kind of penalty if there's a if they suffer as a result. I mean, broadly speaking, that's my criminal law answer to that question but to me it really asks um, a different if we're really focusing on defamation when we're talking about this kind of a subject matter then I mean I find that problematic in itself because it's really about uh, stifling voices and um, defamation if that's getting waved around and look the courts are filled not with defamation cases and high-end civil suits they're filled with criminal offences um (laughs) I'm not trying to bang my own drum, but that's why we exist. Um, and they're filled with criminal offences that, that are about these kinds of issues. They're women who, um, I mean, I work at an organisation that is a defence practice for women who are charged with criminal offences. And, I mean, it, it raises for me a whole lot of issues in the context of particularly what you've um, said about, I guess, the collectivising of women's stories because these women aren't those women. Mm. Um, the women that we work with on the whole are not the women that other people want to hear from mm. because their stories are not palatable stories. I'm not diminishing what you're no, saying, no. but but they're not. They're, they're stories of, of um, a vast number of Aboriginal women that we work with, for example, who have a, a, 
a litany of issues that are going on and the fact that most of our sexual assault or, or family violence, current, past, probably future, really tells a story about a societal response to that um, and a capacity to change that narrative in the context of you know the intersectionality of it all. Our clients' voices are stifled by the fact that they're usually poor, disadvantaged, you know, living in the margins and not palatable to this kind of a movement. So I don't know the answer to your defamation question, but I feel like I've talked enough to cover that. Uh, you know, we've seen over... Um, we, we opened three years ago and we've seen over um, over a 1,000 women, I think, in that time. And this year alone we've opened nearly a 1,000 cases for women. And I... Our, our data tells me that 70% of those women are victims of family violence, self-reporting to us, or sexual assault throughout their lives. Um, I dare say that that really is a fault of our data collection or the identification. And I would guess, I don't recall seeing any women that haven't told me that, that they they sit with that history. Mm-hmm. So what's happening then? Because these women aren't talking to me, saying, oh, Jill, by the way, I would like to um, get involved with the Me Too movement. Yeah. <laughs> They're saying, get me out of prison. Um, get me a house you know that that's the story we're talking to them about but but they're not their experiences are not different in terms of what's happening for them and so there's a real myth there isn't there Uh, I mean in whose voices are being heard in this a lot of your research test is about just that thing about intersectionality and marginalized indigenous voices can you speak a little bit more about your research uh yeah i I wrote a book chapter in uh the book me too and the politics of social change and i was basically talking about and it's something that i actually have mentioned all throughout my academic life so it's obviously something that i have to keep coming back to it's like hang on a minute you don't see us where are we you know uh, the unseen I guess as you sort of have mentioned so I talked about how uh, I see this strange interplay between what uh, for want of a better phrase uh, non-indigenous people might not see of uh, black women's lived experiences and then what I see in terms of the from my personal point of view you know I have spent a lifetime unlearning compliance and working to ignore surveillance so the, the as as a as a young aboriginal child you know knowing that policy largely impacts on my day-to-day life just because I am rendered a statistic in a certain way. I know obviously I didn't think like that when I was five, right? But now that I do more work, I'm like, yeah, actually, it's the power of the state and the oppressive power that kind of impacts on me being able to navigate my way through the world and then the sexualization or the subjugation that I have experienced personally, you know, through that has been quite reverberating. But what also often isn't seen is the power that some black women do actually have and that's why I love living in Melbourne right because there's some really deadly women out there that use anger use humor they use a certain power to go no 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 you're you're not doing this to me so that's great too but I think we also need to accept that there are women that don't don't get to sort of use their own agency and power and a lot of them happen to be people women of color a couple of weeks ago I was doing a, a seminar in Sydney and and, um, you know, I brought up the situation of 
you know, an Aboriginal woman, and I won't say her name even though her name or a different version of her name is used a lot, in the NT who, you know, called the police to help with the domestic violence incident and they arrested her because of unpaid fines. She had a broken rib and ended up dying in prison because they basically were just like, you're a junkie, we don't believe you. You know, they basically dismissed her. Now, she was in abject pain for 40, I think 36 to 48 hours, I think she was. We see this stuff happen in Aboriginal society all the time. And it's really hard to keep talking about it, but it's really also hard to live it. And I'm the lucky one that I get to talk about it. You know, I'm lucky that I don't actually have to live that experience. I know many, many people that have lived that experience. So if you're in a situation where you're in a DV or a family violence or a sexual violence situation and, you know, people say, just call the police for help. You know, Nayuka Gori was saying this on Q&A a couple of weeks ago. She's like, why would we call the police for help? We can end up dead if we call the police for help. So what are you supposed to do? What are you supposed to do as a person of colour, as a woman of colour, if you're facing all of this stuff? And I totally agree with you that, like, you know, that. They might be in a crisis or a complete cycle that is of crisis. And things like sexual assault, it's just one on a whole list of, you know, poverty, health issues, homelessness issues, mental health issues. There's so much going on in their lives. How, how, how do we begin to sort of deal with that? The only thing that I can do is write. And the only thing that I can do is talk about how the colonial project really hasn't necessarily finished in Australia. We still haven't, uh, we still haven't come to a, re- a realisation of what has actually happened in this country. And I mean, until we do that, we can't really address some of these other issues because, you know, on Twitter I even had someone go, oh, how ridiculous, how could you say, you know, how could you say that you know this is happening and yet I think Sissy Austin wrote an article for The Guardian that was about this it was saying Aboriginal women in Victoria are basically in an abusive relationship with the state and they were using things like the Jup Warrung tree protest and they were talking about Tanya Day and things like that so really it goes far deeper in many ways for us and I, I don't, I'm not sure exactly how we deal with that all I can do is write about those experiences and try and give voice to that. Jill do you deal with that kind of distrust in your work that distrust of authority? Most of the clients we have trust the police implicitly. That's a lie. I made that up. <laughs> I just like uh, everyone just being like, wait. Nah. Um, oh, look, I could go on and on and on and on with, with stories about <laughs> women who, and particularly Aboriginal women who I've mostly worked with over my legal career. There's there's a whole lot of implications that come with involving police. I mean, um, Nayuka Gori's comments are absolutely right. Um, why would you go to the police? What happens if, if a woman in a, in a family violence relationship goes to police and she is black is that the likelihood, in fact, the absolute certainty is her children will be taken. And when her children are taken, for her to get them back involves years and years and years of fighting in a court system that is not designed to hear her story. So that's that's a consequence. And I've seen the statistics. There are um, areas in Melbourne where absolutely 100% of family violence reports, where there's an Aboriginal family in the house, will see a notification to child protection. Um, as a direct response for police attendance. And that is not a given in in other households. That's not a part of the process. Um, It just becomes a protective concern if you happen to be an Aboriginal family. So for that person to involve police, what an enormous decision to make if they are trying to remedy a situation in their house and they are in danger, then they have to make a decision then about the consequences of police coming into their premises. And I guarantee you those consequences will not be remedied quickly for those women. And then what 
we see is those women routinely struggle through the next period of time where their children are removed. Often the house then goes because there's not enough people to occupy a house of that size. There's a fracturing from community, whether it's a local suburban community or a regional community. And then all of a sudden this disjointedness, which is an absolute ongoing replica and leftover of colonisation. Absolutely no doubt. And we just displace people through these series of decisions that get made. And so a lot of our clients, you can track really easily, track a trajectory in in their lives. So what happened here for women, I think, and I think it's probably different for men because of the different responsibilities generally that sit within that. But for our clients, there's a very neat trajectory. You say, well, what happened here when this went wrong? And what happened here when this went wrong? And then there's a very, very slippery slope, usually out to Dame Phyllis Frost prison. Then those women become mistrusting of police ongoing. We've had clients who've presented to police stations with sort of axe wounds and um, horrific physical injuries and then been arrested because there's an outstanding warrant in Victoria. It happens every single day. And so that's a decision that gets made. Um, Forget about the children is another decision that you need to make. Well, what happens to me if I go and report this? And I think the other really relevant consideration, and I won't speak to it, is what's prioritised in that community, the protection of the Aboriginal community for women who are in relationships with Aboriginal men and not wanting to then fracture... um, You know, I think that's a really relevant consideration um, for women that I've spoken with and spent years representing, where there's a real tension in that. I won't speak for it any more than that, but... Yeah, absolutely. I did uh, note that in some of the data from the Our Watch uh, website is that they did say that in some of the uh, urban communities, you know, I think there's a sometimes there's a perpetuation of a myth that Aboriginal women are getting beat up only by Aboriginal men. And we know that that's not true. because a lot of us have partners that aren't Aboriginal. You can't say that and then just leave that out there in the ether. You actually still have to deal with the problem that is of violence in communities and to sort of not notice that and not talk about that. And yes, there's lots of really extenuating circumstances and reasons because that, that is based on intergenerational trauma. It is based on being in a cycle of violence that I do think stems from that colonial project. That's what's really, really difficult. It's not an easy fix. Someone on that Q&A panel I think a guest actually asked what is a positive masculinity and a lot of the people in the panel weren't, well, they, I'm not sure whether they really answered it, but one of the instances where I sort of said, okay, here's an example of positive masculinity and there was a, a Twitter sort of thing that was going on for a while that was called Indigenous Dads and it came about because the late Bill Leake, a uh, political cartoonist, did a discussion disgusting cartoon that was about you know aboriginal men aboriginal children and their fathers right and people like actually we need to make sure that we're righting the wrongs in this but we also need to make sure that we're still acknowledging that this happens you know I've seen it happen in my own family so how do we manage that space effectively because I think we live in a society at the moment where it has to be all or nothing for a lot of areas the issue that you brought up also with regards to uh, child removal there's more children Aboriginal children being removed now than there was during the stolen generation and so we have to question why that is actually happening and so and it's not an easy answer so that's the problem is that sometimes it is just because of a bias and a perpetuation and, and us seen as deficits. So if a, if a situation happens with us, I know I used to work in child protection for a while. So if a situation happens with us, the minute the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander box is ticked, we're the vulnerable people. 
And this happens in research, you know, during research ethics, you know, sort of, oh, we have to tick that you're working with vulnerable people. And yes, that's true, but also it's not true. And how do we, it's a really, really complex um, sort of ideological space, I think. Again, it's about power, right? Like it's giving people power, taking power away. Madison, I did want to ask you, you did mention that future seasons of the podcast Mm. are going to be people from different backgrounds and different, you're bringing them to the centre. You talked about how the creative process gave you this a sense of community on tender you talked about performance poetry mm. and how part of that was a healing process for you can you talk about how much creativity fed into your healing yeah absolutely I mean the, the practice itself uh, the reason why I decided to work with audio um, was a very personal decision and it had a lot to do with the fact that and yeah content warning here I will be discussing abuse um, but it had to do with the fact that what was one of the last motivations for me to leave was actually recording him on various evenings because during the during the, the peak abusive moments I wouldn't remember what had happened and I couldn't remember so then being able to listen back at a later time and hear quite disturbing things movements um, physical and verbal sort of gestures gestures is such a terrible way to describe it uh i clearly have more work to do that audio medium allowed me to hear who he was and being able to reclaim that medium and listen to my own story and actually believe that that my my own rendition of the events was the truth and was necessary felt very very pertinent at the time but you're right i mean i did sort of one of my new year's resolutions that year following leaving was going to open mic nights and uh perform spoken word poetry and actually you know seeing people like sister's eye at various events and things like that which was a type of femininity and a type of womanhood that I had never been exposed to and it was so powerful and angry and present that I just found it so unbelievably inspiring and people have a very interesting relationship with art and music and and all of these sort of spaces because we have to acknowledge that justice exceeds just what the law doesn't often offer but is meant to offer Um, justice can live in the spaces of of hearing your own story and that's one thing I noticed when I made tender was I would get this sort of onslaught of emails from various different women a thousand and two thousand word emails where they would just tell me everything about themselves because they'd never had the opportunity to do so and they didn't have anyone who would listen because many many cases the police wouldn't listen or they didn't have enough to prove many cases the abuse was very, very murky. Um, and when I say murky, I mean, this is something Jess Hill, who, who is an incredible um, woman who works in this space, has mentioned that she uses the, the phrase domestic abuse, not domestic violence, because a lot of the most unbelievably awful relationships she has seen in terms of power dynamics and abuse, that person hasn't laid a single hand on their on the survivor. So a lot of these, a lot of the women that were emailing me had never once felt like they were allowed to feel angry and were allowed to have experienced this sort of abuse. But yeah, and I do want to acknowledge too that my capacity to tap into this space and this art form is because I don't fear for my life in the way that a lot of women do and have to. I really, really don't. And that's something that I have found very much so working with the woman I'm working with now, who is incredibly generous with her story. But it took 20 years and it took an incredible amount of court dates and it took essentially being burnt by her partner. And the cultural climate, I mean, violence exists, doesn't exist in a vacuum. The cultural climate she was living in was 9-11. And her partner was a Muslim man. 
And what did that say about her community? What did that say about her relationship to violence? It was really, that's something I've never had to deal with. And the violence that I've had to resolve has been, I mean, no violence is isolated, but the margins that the fellow panellists are speaking about didn't occur, didn't affect me and therefore didn't alter my relationship with my creative work. Um, it took this particular person I'm working with 20 years to be able to use this space and feel safe enough to share her story the way that she has been with me. A couple of things that keep coming up. So you obviously touched on justice then, but you also talked about your truth and the truth. And Jill, you just said before about defamation and it's about saying something that isn't the truth about someone. Well, what I is moved it? away from defamation. But what, but what is... <laughs> But I, I guess I mean, like you were saying, you're not fearing for your life, Madison, so you can talk about it. People who are fearing for their life, if they want to come forward and, and try and get justice through the legal system and their truth is questioned, like what does truth look like in the legal system? <laughs> does, wow. Does wow. it exist? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, look, I think one of the biggest challenges for the legal system is is how to hear the stories from, from our point of view that women have and how they integrate that into a court process. And I'm talking almost wholly about women who are charged with violence offences because there is a mechanism in legislation that says we can hear what your story is around family violence. But the court, in my view, is not ready to hear that. And so it sticks in the throat. And then if you add a layer to that and say, not only is this a woman who has you know, fatally stabbed her partner but she's an Aboriginal woman then how do you reconcile that as a court and I can tell you now that they can't it's it's a very 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 awkward conversation and it ought to sit not in isolation in a courtroom in the same way that um, you know evidence about a brand of car tyre sits it needs to sit in the context of a history in this country and that is the conversation that courts cannot yet have we have Koori courts uh, we have drug courts, there's an ARC court for people with mental health issues. The courts, particularly in the you know, cut and thrust of the magistrates' courts, have worked towards developing different ways of hearing people um, when they come to court charged with criminal offences and, and trying to work with them, I guess. Um, I always think of it as a piece of fabric and they sort of st- poke through. And if someone's poked mm-hmm. through the fabric and they're charged with something, then there's an opportunity for you to grab them and say, well, listen, what what needs to happen now? What's going wrong for you that you're in the court? Because there's usually something going wrong if somebody's in the courthouse and not just that the police have (laughs) grabbed them. That's the wrongest part of it. But there's something that's not sitting right. I know I'm wildly off path for your question, but... But actually, it is about the same discussion. It's about how somebody's story, whether they're the defendant or the person who's making a complaint, how their story is translated from a story into a legal discourse. And I and Roberta Sykes wrote about this 20 or 30 years ago, about her story getting translated into the story of the courts. And it's not it's no different now. And here we are this, this far along with a Royal Commission into Family Violence, a Royal Commission into Institutional Responses, to sexual abuse there's a royal commission into everything but we don't have answers that are embedded then in systemic responses Mm. to people's lives how do we change that (coughs) yes it's a very very important question look from my point of view we we try to push every i don't know i don't know the answer that i think 
you've got to push every case you have. Mm. From our point of view, I'm a lawyer. That's what I do every day. I meet women. They've got stories. And I think if you don't advocate, get in there hard, listen to what they're saying and translate that into a legal discourse. But in a way that challenges decision makers to hear stuff that they don't have time to hear, that they don't want to hear, challenging prosecutions to listen to what you're saying, to challenge the evidence that's available before the courts, then then you're not worth your salt really. And I think there are those little pushes that happen on the ground and they ought to feed along the chain. They ought to feed decision makers making decisions and then the implementation. But look, There are people much smarter than me in this space um, that are able to influence the way in which those things happen. My sister once said to me, you know what, we just got to raise a a community where little boys are taught to respect little girls and little girls are taught to respect themselves and and believe that they ought to be treated in a certain way. But she's a social worker, so... (laughs) Um, and also, I, I think there's a really important point there about the relationship violence has with progress in this country as well. One thing I remember Jess Hill saying was, which I found incredibly disturbing, but also very worth mentioning, was the more we spoke about domestic violence, the more it became part of our public language and the more there were ads on at prime time about how to be respectful towards women. There were women calling the police and, and crisis hotlines saying, my partner gets angry when he sees these ads please turn them off and there is something to be said about the the rise of women and women taking up more space and that correlating with very heinous abuse even in my own relationship when it was occurring uh the more I spoke up to this person the more I would be likely to be verbally assaulted or humiliated or you know put down and the woman I'm working with now she had a very similar relationship to to abuse in that the more she started to resemble a western woman the more her partner felt it necessary to punish her so we can't necessarily just I mean progress is a really complicated thing that will take victims in its stride and that's a really hard thing to know how to how to grapple with and it's something I don't have the answers to either but it, it, it yeah to be able to speak up and the, the actual gesture of speaking up sometimes is enough of a provocation for many to then be violent towards you. Yeah, Tess and I were saying before about the concept of performative trauma and how Trina Burke mentioned with the hashtag, how she saw these thousands and thousands of people, millions even, responding and cutting and bleeding online and there was no protection there. The concept of disclosure is discussed a lot. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I know you've worked in forensic disclosure, which I didn't even know was a thing. Like we just hear people use the word, they've disclosed this, disclosure that. Can you explain what that means it was a very long time ago and it was part of my training in child protection you know we're going to have have call outs to going to young children and how do we take those disclosures so the training was let's see let's role play and see how you would you know accept this disclosure and everyone did it therapeutically Mm. (laughs) everyone said it's going to be okay I'm really sorry this happened to you and they were like no this is terrible this is what you're you're tainting the evidence you can't do it like this it has to be we have to think about how we capture the documentation how we case note everything because we have to make sure that it's strenuous I guess for court and I completely understand that but what does that do 
for the victim? What does that do for the person that's telling the story? And at the seminar that I went to a couple of weeks ago, they talked a lot about this, that they, that they want there to be more of a push, especially this is in New South Wales, that they're having these conversations at the moment about, you know, sort of bringing in consent laws or new consent laws. How can they do this? How can they make sure that the accepting the disclosures and sort of dealing with them from a legal point of view is also sort of based on a feminist kind of paradigm? How can they do it so that it has a bit more of a therapeutic response in it to anything? I don't really know how that would necessarily work because I'm sure that there's going to be some legal person out there that goes, no, 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 you know, you, you can't do it this way. I'm basically... Looking at you, Jill. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> and so how, how, how do we actually do that? You know, it was, a, it was a terrible space to be in because here you are talking to, you know, a 10-year-old and you're having to say, so what happened? And then what happened? And then what happened? And it just sounds so brutal when, you know, you want to say, I'm really, really, really sorry that this happened. The other thing I was going to say, so I mentioned the consent laws, and I think I think it was Jess Hill, I'm not sure that was talking about um, cons- uh, coercion and things like that. So I think there's a lot of murky grey areas, both for the legal system and just for Australian society as a whole. I mean, we have terrible leadership in this country that rips funding out of services that work in family violence. Oh, works we better take the money out uh, or, or we have people like Pauline Hansen saying we need yet another review to go you know sit in that collection of really lovely reviews and I said somewhere the other day that we care more about needles and strawberries than we do about mm. violence against women and I'm not sure how we begin to change it I know that for me there's media discourse and representation that really needs changing. I think Victoria's, with a lot of their community service or public service announcements, stuff that they're doing, they are trying to change that. But Tarana Burke said something really interesting on Monday night. She said, I remember like when smoking was a thing and everyone smoked and now we're seeing young teenagers, like she's talking about her daughter, that's like, oh, smoking's disgusting. And she's like, you know, maybe it is just a paradigm shift. Mm. The problem is we don't want to wait that long, do yeah. we? We honestly don't want to wait that long because if one person is you know sort of being murdered at the hands of their partner a week a week we can't wait another 20 years for this stuff to happen so I can actually remember when the provocation laws changed in this Mm. state and I know that I can remember it because young lawyers that come to work with me don't even know what it is but anyway I remember learning it at uni and uh, and I remember going to the launch of the the report that called for the the repeal of provocation as a defence mm. to murder because it was primarily, if not wholly, being used by men um, as a defence uh, where they had killed usually a domestic partner. Um, and that was only probably fifteen years ago that that happened. And I can remember crusty old barristers saying, "What an outrage! This is you know this is sort of feminism gone mad, and it's crazy, and what a response, and oh, the world's going." to end and then gradually it just slipped out of people's recollections and we we moved through to um, defensive homicide which was sort of the battered woman syndrome defense um, and then that then was masterfully used by by blokes who had killed women um, and then that went and we came in with the current model and so there are these attempts I think to to remedy through legislation if you know, in that sort of space, but they shift as time goes on and ought to at least reflect what the community expectations are. Um, but it, it is, yeah, there's some challenges ahead, I think. I'll throw it open to the floor. Did you want to pop your hand up? 
as if there are no questions. We must be awesome because we covered everything. You're not wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you've solved it. Does anyone want to know what defamation means? <laughs> yeah, we've got a question over there. My name is Nicola and there are three things that I know. I know that the suffragettes, when they were fighting for something important, were very strong. They would lock themselves, they would throw themselves under horses. They fought hard for what they wanted. And I also know the patriarchy here in this country is not disposed towards women, indigenous, um, disabled, mm-hmm. poor, you know, most of us. And I know that hope is a function of struggle. So how can I, as a woman, be part of the struggle mm-hmm. in a way that's going to be effective, you know, as a environmental activist mm. or, or, or working in, in communities other than my own. I often say that, you know, things change when you build relationships. So it is, you have to start at micro level. You have to start at a one-on-one understanding another person's experience, whether it be, you know, what the experience of being part of the legal system is, which is largely sort of patriarchal, is patriarchal, or what the lived experience of, you know, a person that comes from a different identity group, be they, you know, having a disability or a chronic health condition or any thing like that and when you begin to build those relationships you change mindsets and it's it spreads you know it's like a a good type of toxicity that that spreads and reverberates and you build on it through other people and you shift mindsets and hopefully in the growing of that it shifts the paradigm it shifts the thinking societally I guess and that's the that's the kind of hope that I hold on to and for me the the hope that I try and instill is in when I see really amazing women when I see really amazing Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women when I see really amazing young women and I'm like oh I wish I was I wish I'd been you I wish I'd been you when I was 17 because I'd be so you know much sort of further ahead now in my way of thinking and so that gives me it just inspires me to keep going I think that's really important um and I do really love to think about the expansive nature of what the streets are and like what it means to protest on the streets and I think there is an incredible amount of space for that sort of protesting and I'm, I'm so inspired by a lot of the climate activists and the the amazing um, lengths that they have gone to against a plainly very fascist state that we live in but one thing that's incredible about the way that this the the public space has evolved is that we have computers and we have this internet access that I mean we're speaking about the hashtag me too movement there is something to be said in that we're constantly plugged in which means we're constantly in a state of struggle or hope or power and if we utilize all of the spaces we possibly can there it just seems to be the case that progress will inevitably occur through different forms of access and different forms of inclusion and yeah acknowledging your strengths as well as your capacity to tap out too which I think is a really um, important point and also celebrating the little victories as well a friend of mine who is a school teacher just started sort of a, a queer group at her school and she has you know young men wearing winged eyeliner and it, they don't think about it and that there can be this idea of like, oh God, I wish that I was around for that. But there's also this really exciting thing that's occurring where the spectacle of women or marginalised people, queer people, reclaiming space in their bodies and 
their presentation of gender or the self is so different. And that is really, really exciting. So being able to step back and celebrate those victories too and acknowledge that we are standing on the shoulders of the women that did throw themselves in front of horses. And we do need to acknowledge that, but also be kind to ourselves in the process because no one else is. Men aren't. (laughs) (laughs) Jill, how do you deal? Because your work sounds like a laugh a minute. Like it's all very light and fun. How do you deal with the self-care elements and maintaining hope? Um, Look, I don't know. A friend of mine, a very dear friend of mine many years ago um, said, oh, look, you know, Jill, I'm really worried about you and there's this thing called vicarious trauma and, (laughs) um, you know, you hear all these stories and, you know, there's so much trauma and loss and, you know, really... I mean, and and seeing really awful things often, you know, in in briefs of evidence, they're not usually happy, chappy things. There's photos of things that people shouldn't see, really. Mm. But um, I said to her at the time, and it sounds a little bit wanky, but but I actually, I hold it now that I actually find it quite strengthening to have those stories. It really sounds even more wanky when I say it out loud, but... It is true. Um, Like, I've acted for a lot of people over a number of years and I just feel, you know, we call upon individuals to pretty bluntly just walk up and say, hey, how are you going? Here you are, you're at court, I'm here, I'm representing you. Now tell me everything about you in five minutes. And, look, I vividly remember many years ago seeing this um, fellow up in Mildura um, and I... And I've been going up there for a long time and I knew a lot of his family and, and the community up there. And I sat down with him in, in the busy sort of court list and I was talking to him, OK, so here we are. and we go, Now, where were you born? Who's your mum? Who's your dad? How many brothers? How many sisters? What was your childhood like? Was it happy? Was it sad? And I kept getting paged into court. I'd be like, I'm so sorry. Just give me one second. I'll go out here. And after about four or five times, he just said, you know what, don't worry. Fair enough. Like he waited four or five times before he's, you know, and it has sat with me like a cup of cold sick ever since. It's just, of course he said that. What an overwhelming experience for him. And there's Dickhead just going in and out. Oh, sorry, right now where were we? So you had a really horrible, then this happened, that was really awful. Just a sec, I'll be back in a minute. But that's what we ask of um, the court process. And and we, we're really obliged to interrupt that and say, well, no, that's not okay. We will take as much time as is needed practicably in the time allowed. But to slow that down and to actually give people some respect and dignity in what is a harrowing experience, to say, look, tell me everything about you and then trust that I'm going to hold that in my hand um, and then I'm going to relay parts of that to the person in the courtroom who's going to make a decision about you. I mean, that's a really... Like, how does that affect me? I just think what a blessing that that person trusts me enough to give me that information in a way that is... Actually, the stories of resilience and survival and strength in communities, I agree. This disadvantage, you know, this vulnerable, you know, the the strength in the Aboriginal communities in this country is extraordinary in the face of the bullshit that lies in front. And I just get to hear from people what, what they're doing and actually sometimes assist them to shift away from something into something else or make the process they have to go through a little bit less horrible or you know it's actually completely enriching and rewarding so um, the only times I really get chummed out is if I don't get what I want Uh, and sometimes that happens but but it happens less frequently than it could probably and um, so usually I'm pretty happy with it all to be honest Um, I feel very lucky to have 
the life that I have and working with the women that I do and and all of the clients that I've had in the past, actually. I feel lucky to hear from you. Are there any other questions in the room? Yeah. Um, I'm just wondering, I know we've talked about the meter movement and I feel like there's been a focus on sort of the, the, the negative aspects of the movement or the limitations, which I absolutely agree with. But I do wonder whether you see see it as positive in some ways and whether you think that it has actually affected some sort of change within Australia um, and whether it's something that can be built on or whether it was just this wave that has now subsided and we're sort of waiting for something new or need to make something new happen. Yeah, totally. I mean, I really liked that we are discussing that because it did make waves. It absolutely did. Uh, Women do women that are angry absolutely do make waves and there's something that I was when I was speaking to the woman who I'm working with with the, with this um, season of tender one thing she said that was so pertinent to to the progress that we've made was she just didn't know it was abuse I mean it hurt and she wasn't happy but she didn't know there was another option she didn't know that she didn't deserve that whereas in this cultural climate where we are sharing these sort of stories that we are reading and they are nuanced and complex and come from so many different areas um, and industries and we have this collective response which is that's bad and that flow on effect means that by acknowledging that it's bad we acknowledge that we don't then deserve it and for someone like this particular woman when she speaks to younger women especially younger Muslim women that have grown up in similar communities to her they know how to spot abuse right from the from the get-go and that's a relationship that I had to my own experience that was so different to this particular person's because I was hyper aware that it hurt and it wasn't nice but I was also educated enough and had access to enough information to then realize but I actually don't deserve it too and yeah there's trauma in in coming out of that space absolutely but what initiatives like hashtag me too and and other sort of you know hope initiatives do is they stop that extra layer of public gaslighting that says hang on but was it even really that bad it changes that also we know what the word gaslighting means do you know what i mean like things as simple as the fact we're in this room having this very discussion right now i think is amazing absolutely so yeah i do find it very exciting and as much as we are you know men are still feeling particularly angry and hateful toward women the women that exist in this space and this world uh, are just finally feeling more entitled to things that they they didn't feel entitled to before or didn't feel like they could feel entitled to before so yeah i'm very excited for that can I just say something about that? I, I think it also, it's this, that kind of conversation exists because there's a whole lot of other stuff going on. And so there must be a setting for that to occur. There must be other, you know, perfect storms that are going out in the community. And I think it's interesting, we, we spoke, and I, this is count, uh, contrary to most of what I say, which I, which I sort of try and gear away from white middle class, upper class women. But my colleague and I went and spoke to um, a group of much older, sort of 70, 80 year old, very, very privileged women at an event. I don't even remember what it was actually, but about our organisation. And at the end of it, you could hear this sort of natter around the room where, you know, Joan at the back said, oh yes, well, that's like when Bob said this to me and or restricted my funds. And, and, and Sharon said, well, that's not that's not what's being said. That's not abuse. And the whole the whole room sort of started coming alive with these women who were lived a different life that probably wouldn't. I don't even do it, know what a hashtag is to be honest. But um, I do. But uh, you know, it's a different dialogue that occurs, but and a different set of social norms and what was acceptable, what was spoken. But it was resonating in this room in a really interesting sort of way. 
they <laughs> might have been a bit of bullying in the end, but they it was a very interesting observation to see that it's those kinds of conversations really do open up space for people, um, I guess. And as I say, it's contrary to what I said earlier, so I'll leave it there. <laughs> and I think, like, voice has power. And, it, you know, like I get that people might be like, well, you know, but what about the real world sort of implications? And I think it's really, really important at this juncture to critically reflect um, what Me Too is doing or what the movement is, is doing in Australia right now. Putting that aside, <coughs> just the strength that I see in voice and in women claiming the space and because I also write about leadership and women going, uh, hello, you're not going to treat us like this anymore. We're not going to you know, sit back and accept poor behaviour from, from men or from institutions. I see it happen in universities. You know, I, I, I see conferences happen where there's 16 people speaking and you know, to, I think four of them were women and none of them were Aboriginal academic women. And I'm like, so we're 66% of the Indigenous academic space, could you not find one? So there's there's power. And there's and what I also get to see is if I see like a misogynist or, you know, a troll start going at someone on Twitter, I see this amazing wave, like this tsunami of women coming for that person. <laughs> and it gives me so much joy. <laughs> so I think there's... There's some real positives in that, if that doesn't sound right. But, yeah, I think there's positives in, in the power of voice. So. It's almost a little bit like, I dare you. Like, come after me. All of these women are here. They're ready and waiting. They're really mad and they're going to come after you too. Um, so I do kind of find that a little bit exciting when I see someone troll a vocal feminist and then everyone just gets on the bandwagon. It's good fun. On that note, we'll wrap up tonight's event. I want to thank and also Presents for partnering with us, Moreland City Council for supporting the event, and of course, my wonderful guests. I'd also like to add this was a huge topic and a surprisingly quick conversation about a much greater issue, bigger than this room could hold, let alone a curated panel could manage. Part of the ethos of Sisteria, like and also Presents, is that we want to keep these discussions happening. So if you have any ideas, comments, questions, contact us, sisteriapodcast at gmail.com and on our social media pages. We'd also like to thank the Auslan interpreters. I'd like to thank Toby for doing my sound. And of course, the panelists, Tess, Madison, Jill. Thanks everyone for coming. Sisteria, created by women and for anyone who wants to listen. Sisteria is produced by Stephanie Van Schilt and me, Jessica Luciano. For links to everything we've discussed, check out our website, sisteriapodcast.com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Sisteriapod. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. And if you love what we do, we'd love for you to leave us a review on iTunes too. Our amazing theme music is by Rainbow Chan. Sisteria is recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and to the elders of the lands this podcast reaches. We hope you tune in again soon. I just call-